Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible founder. You know, we're going to be talking, you know, quite a bit on building hyper growth companies, you know, his experience at Robin Hood and that, how that shaped up, you know, his thinking towards, you know, building rocket ships and he's definitely built one of his own. And we're going to be talking about many of the good stuff that they went through from, you know, the values to the rounds of financings that they did and what they were looking from investors and how they did it uh, to, um, you know, other good stuff like culture and things that, uh, you know, really are really helpful when, when you look at building, scaling and and wrap things up. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sahil Podar. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Um, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So originally born in India. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, I grew up in, you know, the third largest city of India, a city called Kolkata. Um, Kolkata is very busy, very noisy, very densely polluted. Um, lots of traffic. Um, there's a huge variance in the way people live their lives. Um, I went to public school there. Um, you know, childhood was mostly spent um, studying math, physics, computer science, and playing cricket uh, in every patch of land that my friends and I could find uh, in the city. Um, and um, I still remember, you know, the first time a computer arrived at home, it only had Microsoft DOS on it. Uh, so uh, my friends and I spent a lot of time just tinkering with that um, at an early age. Um, so that's that's how it was growing up in, in Kolkata. So then tell us about also moving to a different place, you know, to Pune when when you had to go to high school. I mean, how was, you know, the process of going to another location, making new friends? You know, I'm sure that that uncertainty, you know, shaped who you are today quite a bit. It absolutely did, uh, you know. Moving at an early age uh, certainly made me appreciate and and get comfortable around being an outsider, which um, you know I continue to be for the for the remainder of my life, um, at least until this thus far. Um, in Pune, I met uh, my high school teacher that who convinced me to get into physics instead of math. Uh, so that certainly uh, shaped um, my uh, you know thinking and, and career journey. Um, I made a lot of friends that continue to be friends till today, some of my closest friends. Um, so it was it was a wonderful experience overall. So then what about when you ended up landing and you find yourself in London? You know, walk us through that, because, I mean, obviously you went there to study at Imperial and uh, in Imperial, one of the most uh, incredible universities, you know, we can't, when it comes to perhaps, you know, like the, the life sciences, you know, type of um, type of degrees, you know, in this case, you know, here, there where you were studying, you got your bachelor's and master's degree in physics, you know, which has shaped you, which has also shaped the way that you thought about building, you know, your current company too, Paraffin. So how was the experience at Imperial and how do you land, do you land in Imperial? Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned, you know, uh, my high school teacher had actually done his PhD at Imperial. So he really encouraged me to um, to go there uh, and study physics. Um, when I reached there, uh, very quickly, I found myself um, in a group of highly motivated, um, uh, you know, want-to-be physicists. Um, so it was a very intense place uh, where 
there was a lot of uh, rigor in in mathematics and physics, uh, and you know you really had to compete hard to to do well in 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 college. Um, but that's also where you know I got exposed to all the different areas of physics. We went deep into certain areas, uh, and that led me to uh, pick uh, you know particle physics in my PhD. Um, so it it was it was a wonderful time. It was a very intense time, uh, but a a time when you kind of are um, almost like uh, uh, tasting all the dishes in a, in a buffet to know which one are you going to actually uh, eat for your main course, which is uh, you know trying out a lot of different physics courses to know which one you want to dive deeper into. So when you went to Germany and you did your PhD there, uh, it sounds like it was good training on on becoming a data scientist. Why was that the case? So at the Large Hadron Collider, um, where I did my PhD, um, physicists generally use the similar type of tools that data scientists use today. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on um, tools that enable machine learning modeling, um, statistical modeling, um, computational math, uh, in order to analyze data from the Large Hadron Collider to find signals for you know physics events such as the Higgs boson. Um, so it's a very natural transition um, once you have learned those tools to apply them anywhere. And as it happened, so um, data science was taking off uh, in tech as a as a hot uh, career. Uh, and so it was a very natural transition to go from a PhD to data science. So entering the world of startups, you know, everything started with Meta. Why Meta? Facebook at the time. I think Facebook was, uh, you know, I've always liked to uh, work in areas that are sort of have large impact or are big, you know, CERN was a huge physics project. Um, Facebook had this huge uh, surface area. It, it was covering a huge imprint on the world uh, where they, it had billions of users using it um, and huge amounts of data. So for a data scientist, you know, um, you do need a lot of data to do your, to, to have interesting problems to solve. Uh, and Facebook was one of the few companies, especially in Europe that was hiring um, that had uh, vast amounts of data where a person like me could uh, could you know help out the business. So I guess that probably opened up your your eyes, you know, because obviously Facebook, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, the American dream, you know, all of that stuff. I'm sure that that came to mind. And and again, you know, like eventually, you know, Robin Hood, you know, the idea comes knocking, and the idea of coming to the U.S. I mean, how was how did that incubate it for you? How did that happen? Yeah, so there's an interesting story there, um, you know, uh, by virtue of uh, being employed at, at now Meta, then Facebook, uh, I made a few different trips to the U.S. and by some stroke of luck, met a seed investor um, at Robinhood, um, and uh, they introduced me to the company. The company was not really looking for data scientists at the time. It was relatively small. It was uh, maybe under 20 people. Or so, but it took me about six to nine months to convince Robinhood to hire me as a data scientist, uh, and that's when I moved to the U.S. And how how did you connect with this city investor? Who was this city investor? Because obviously, this city investor has done pretty well for for himself or herself. So, how did you connect with this city investor of Robinhood? Um, it was a it was a common friend who who introduced us. The fund um, does not exist anymore. It's it's a fund called Rothenberg Ventures, um, which does not exist anymore. Okay, got it. All right, so now. In this case, you know, Robinhood. So you land in Robinhood. You know, it's a company with just a, a few dozen, you know, uh, employees uh, at the time that you joined. So how was that, the Robinhood at the time? What did that look like? Because obviously very different from the, you know, Robinhood of thousands of employees today, you know, that has gone public and, you know, different different story at the time. 
Yeah, Robinhood was an incredible place. I think the founders had a, you know, a similar background. Um, they were, you know, experts in math, physics, by which of having done master's, PhDs in those topics. Um, it, it had a very uh, scientific approach to company building. Um, you know, it had naturally continues to have excellent product market fit. Um, it is also where I met my co-founders, which is probably the uh, the biggest gift that I got from Robinhood. Um, and um, it is also where I learned everything I know about the world of, of financial technology. Now, in this case, you know, like with Robinhood, you know, there was a lot of um, basically machine learning, you know, engineering that you were doing. I mean, what were some of the projects that uh, that you were doing there? And then also, how what, what were some of those ingredients that you saw those patterns of such a rocket ship, you know, that uh, that perhaps you learned that maybe one day, you know, you would like to apply, you know, to whatever you would do next? Yeah. Um, data science, you know, at Robinhood was uh, initially uh, working a lot on growth. Um, and so that was, that was one area where I contributed a lot. We managed to grow the Robinhood user base, I think roughly by 100x um, at my time there. And... Uh, we used all kinds of techniques. Uh, we were using machine learning to, you know, better use the ad networks such as Google and Facebook, uh, making measurements, measuring churn, um, preventing churn, um, and and running experiments. So it was it was a very high high intense experience. Uh, and the things that I learned there uh, that you know that continue to stick with me. Um, I think first the first and foremost is the importance of product market fit uh, and how. Uh, you know, one should not fool yourself uh, into having one and you're the easiest person to fool in the words of Feynman. Um, the second thing was just driving a sense of urgency in everything that you do. Um, uh, and the third thing is is the importance of um, hiring and retaining um, good talent because at the end of the day, uh, the company is an aggregation, a company is an aggregation of of, uh, uh, of all the people that work in it. So then at what point does the idea of paraffin, you know, come knocking? Because, you know, obviously as part of Robinhood, you know, not only you were able to really understand, you know, and, and get your mind shaped around building a really high, hyper growth, super successful company, but then also you met your co-founder. So it sounds like it was pivotal for you, Robinhood. So at what point did start, you know, things started coming together and incubating, you know, so that you eventually, you guys were like, let's go. We're ready. Yeah. Um, so I think it's difficult to pinpoint a particular uh, moment in time uh, where, where the ideation happened, but it was something certainly on the back of um, our minds. And by our, I mean, my co-founders and I, and my mind um, for a while, uh, you know, we would have a lot of informal um, chat about it. Um, what got us excited was what we were seeing uh, you know, happen in the consumer fintech world, a, a, a sort of renaissance where, you know, consumers had a plethora of opportunities of installing and downloading apps and using them instantaneously, um, providing them, you know, state-of-the-art financial technology tools. A similar renaissance um, escaped the small business world, um, naturally for very good reasons. Uh, you know, there are companies like Square and Stripe that have laid the bedrock um, in the SMB space by digitizing payments, but there's so much more to be done. Uh, and, you know, the biggest needs of the SMB are still go unaddressed. Um, so we decided to kind of take our learnings, what we knew about building um, financial technology, how the U.S. financial, you know, infrastructure space works, and then apply it to create um, 
uh, value for small businesses. So, so then tell us about that moment where you guys finally are like, okay, you know, this is happening. You know, you give the notice, and then you know, what were the early days like of of the company? Um, yeah, the, the early days were uh, a little bit counterintuitive for us when we were living in the moment, um, especially because we did not write a single line of code uh, for the first few months um, of, of of our. Uh, you know, daily jobs at Paraffin, so to speak. Um, and that for three technical co-founders was a very difficult task. Uh, we were itching to to write something and to write some code. And, and, and you know, um, what we instead did was we spoke to a lot of customers, did a lot of deep user research um, that then enabled us to, uh, you know, double down on on the specific problem that we we chose to solve, which is making it easier for small businesses to, get uh, access to capital. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then so then in this case, you know, like what, what does it look like, you know, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Paraffin today? How do you guys make money? Yeah. So, um, you know, to take you through um, a very quick overview, um, Paraffin's mission is to grow small businesses. We believe that eventually every small business will get aggregated by a platform that is either an on-demand marketplace like Amazon, DoorDash, Etsy, a vertical SaaS like Shopify, or a POS like Square or Ship for Payments, um, simply because these platforms make it very simple for a business to get started up and running. They solve a lot of operational challenges for them, increasingly process payments for them, in certain cases, generate, generate demand for them. So as a small business, it just makes a lot of sense uh, to flock to these platforms to run your business. As a result of this aggregation of um, small businesses by platforms, a new window of opportunity to serve financial services via these platforms to the small businesses opens up uh, with a lot of advantages um, which enable uh, you know, customization of, of uh, financial products. Small businesses, uh, you know, that sell on platforms, the platforms know exactly how much transactions uh, they're making. They have an existing relationship with the small business. 
uh, and they're highly incentivized to grow the small business. Uh, what Parafin does is it enables the platform to offer embedded business financing, um, where a SMB can get revenue-based financing based on their sales. Uh, the, the small business pays um, you know, a fee, and that fee is split between uh, our capital providers, um, our platforms, um, and, and Parafin. And that's essentially the business model. And how do you guys go about getting the first customers here? So going back to, you know, uh, the, when I mentioned about user research, we did a lot of it. We spoke to some of the biggest platforms uh, in the country. Um, it just happened so uh, that, you know, DoorDash at the same time was looking for a, uh, a partner to do this with. Um, so we were in constant conversation with them. They kind of, uh, you know, they disappeared for a few months because they were in the process of uh, go- going public, uh, and then they reappeared, and and we launched with them in Q1 2021, um, and and that's how we kind of you know got our first customers. Um, another initial customer, um, you know, a payment processor in the auto shop space, a company called 360 Payments. Um, I just happened to walk into an auto shop and and speak to uh, them as to what payment processor they use uh, and if they would trust them to lend them money. Uh, and that's uh, and based on the responses, you know, uh, we really started to join the dots there. Uh, so those are kind of how we landed our first couple of customers. And obviously for this, uh, it's a capital intensive. So how have you guys gone about this? How much capital have you guys raised to date? Um, we've raised $94 million in equity over three rounds of financing, um, a seed, a series A and a series B. And what was the journey like on raising all that money and, and also from those investors that you did raise the money from? Yeah, when we raised our seed round, um, you know, we um, did things that, you know, I would not advise um, a a founder to do today, which is we didn't speak to very many different funds. We kind of just uh, approached Rivet, uh, Rivet Capital, um, and it was primarily based on the relationship that they had with Robinhood and what we had heard about their reputation from there. Um, And uh, that's how we kind of got started. So, and and they they agreed to to fund us. When you say reputation, what... What do you mean with reputation? What were some of those uh, traits that you were like, I think this guy could be a good fit? Yeah, I think the things that we were hearing from the team at Robinhood um, and you know, had experienced ourselves was how much rigor Ribbit used to put in their, uh, in the questions they asked teams, uh, both during a due diligence process, but also in a board meeting. Um, and, you know, they would always ask the toughest questions. And as a, as a founder who is seeking truth in his business, in his, his or her business, you want that. Um, Secondly, they are naturally very uh, focused on, you know, financial technology companies, and that's that's essentially what they do. Uh, as a result, there is just a um, dense knowledge, but also a dense network of um, connections that Rubit can make in in the financial technology world, which um, which you know we wanted to leverage. Um, for our series A, we uh, uh, raised um, thirty million dollars, roughly, from Thrive Capital. Um, the way I think about Thrive's superpower is that they are, you know, very connected to the old world in both America and internationally. Uh, and when when we looked around, we we you know, uh, our thinking was that that's something that's missing in the in the Paraffin social graph. Uh, we also love our partner and board member there, who uh, himself is building a company, and as a result, uh, you know, is is very sympathetic uh, and empathetic towards the founder's journey. So so I guess. Now, as as you're obviously raising money from 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 these incredible people, you know you've you've done that on the equity side. How does it work on the debt side? You know, like when when you raise debt, uh, how does it work? Why would you raise debt? How do you put that debt to work? You know, 
Tell us a little bit about that and how it's maybe a little bit more different than the equity side. I think the key difference uh, in mindset between a debt and an equity investor is an equity investor, when they look at a company, they, they ask themselves, you know, what is the one thing that could go right here? And they find 10 different companies and, and hope that, you know, one of those 10 things work out well, in which case they generate returns. And that's essentially their business model. Um, the business model for debt investors is that they look, when they look at a company, they look at all the different things that can go wrong. Um, and they're really protecting for the downside versus trying to optimize for, you know, this asymmetric upside. Um, I think founders talking to debt investors have to internalize that and, and eventually have to execute and build processes to make them comfortable around that. Um, any company that is in a capex-intensive business will initially have to fund things out of equity in order to prove um, that to debt investors that this is debt worth uh, financing. Um, so we de-risk that you know, using some of our seed funds uh, to initially give capital to small businesses. But once we had a bit of a track record, we approached uh, debt investors um, and were able to effectively leverage our equity to raise debt. Um, so for every you know, dollar of equity that you, uh, that you have, you can potentially raise like 20x more debt. So then, so then in this case too, I mean, when we're talking about investors, you know, obviously they really have to buy the vision, you know, and get excited by the vision. So I guess as we're thinking about that, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Sahil, and you wake up in a world where the vision of paraffin is fully realized. What does that world look like? It would be an amazing world, uh, but uh, to be more specific, um, you know, it's a world in which a small business is able to borrow money, spend money, store money, save money, um, and do all of those via the platforms they sell their businesses uh, or their products on. Uh, platforms like Amazon, DoorDash, Etsy, Airbnb, MindBody, WorldPay, um, you know, these are platforms that small businesses interact with every single day. Uh, and they also um, should be the financial providers for these small businesses. Um, so that's what the world looks like. So as we're talking about people here, obviously, you know, investors, I want to I wanna keep talking about people, you know, and, and, you know, the folks that you've been able to surround yourself at uh, Paraffin with, I guess, how do you go about making sure that you're hiring good people? Um, there's a lot of different ingredients that go into it. Uh, first and foremost, um, I personally believe in order to hire the best people, you need to provide them as much transparency as possible. And that goes beyond you know, just team members, also true for customers, investors, business partners. Uh, so try and be as authentic as possible uh, because that will attract uh, naturally very authentic people. Uh, secondly, have uh, you know what's a, a non-negotiable is to have a process in place where existing team members um, can vet uh, incoming team members um, and test them for intellectual rigor. Um, and the third is you know try, try and really understand if they will be a good cultural fit, which means two things. First, they have a very clearly defined culture in your company, uh, and then make sure these people are a good fit for that. Um, and also, you know, when you're getting people, you need to uh, to rally them, you know, and they need to get inspired too with the culture. So ultimately, what's culture? You know, how, how have you guys gone about shaping this up and establishing the right type of cultural values for the business? Yeah. Um, at Paraffin, the cultural, you know, our cultural tenets or cultural values are essentially 
um, uh, the following. Uh, first and foremost is intellectual honesty. Um, what we mean by that is, um, you know, the focus and uh, relentless pursuit of um, discovering the truth and and getting to the truth. Every business has to eventually face the truth, and uh, you know, be it public markets or uh, an M and A or um, you know your customers or the growth of your business. It's all kind of um, conditioned on on you discovering and actually creating value for your uh, for your customers. Um, so let's try to be as intellectually honest um, and try to pursue the truth um, as much as possible. Secondly, is that of efficiency. Uh, you know, I think there's a period in in pre 2021 uh, and you know in the zero interest rate environment where a lot of companies had forgotten uh, that at the end of the day they exist to make profits uh, and you know. Uh, the amount of people you hire, kind of uh, the amount of uh, both adds to how slow you are, but also to operational cost. Uh, so let's try to be as efficient as possible, not just in terms of dollar resources, but also time resource. Uh, if you can do something quickly uh, and you know get the same learnings from it, uh, then let's not wait for um, the fully baked solution or the most perfect solution. The third is that of accountability. Um, you know. The best people want to work around highly accountable people, and by by accountability, what I mean is that you know you really do what you say you're going to do, um, and if you are not capable of doing that, uh, then have very good reasons as to why that was not achieved. Um, and if you learn something new um, uh, about you know the failure mode, try to um, fix it the next time by doing something different. And the last uh, you know most important cultural tenet is that of uh, empathy. Uh, no one wants to work around assholes, uh, so we, you know, try and be as kind as possible um, to to everyone around you. Uh, you were talking about the environment, you know, earlier. Uh, obviously, you know, now uh, a much different environment, you know, with this macro, um, you know, uh, landscape that we're looking at. And you know, obviously, you guys, you know, are really helping there on supplying capital to businesses that face institutional barriers uh, in financing. So, I'm wondering, like. How has the macro environment shaping up your guys' uh, outlook and a strategic roadmap? Yeah, I would say at a uh, at a personal level, it's made it easier to make tough decisions um, because you know there is no hiding, so to speak, and and that's that's a, a really big positive that has um, come out of it. Um, secondly, it naturally makes us think much harder about where we want to be spending our time, our resources. Um, and, and then thirdly, you know, we have a very clearly defined goal, um, uh, about, you know, reaching certain business metrics, uh, and those are now more so defined by, uh, what we expect the, the capital markets to look like in the next 12, 24, 36 months, uh, versus an environment, which was, you know, that's sort of pre 2021, 2022 environment where, uh, it was almost a given that as long as you show revenue growth, you will uh, be able to raise more money, which which isn't the case today. Today, you know, people care a lot more about margins. So uh, let's make that the most important metric uh, to track and, and grow uh, as, a, as a business. So in this case, imagine, you know, because before I was talking to you about vision and the future, I want to talk about the past. But I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. Imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back, you know, back to that moment that, Maybe you were still working, you know, in, in Robin Hood, you know, maybe back to that 2020, you know, time where 
you guys were still not ready to give the uh, the, the notice, but, uh, you know, something was cooking, you know, there in the back burner. And you guys were thinking about, like, maybe, you know, doing something on your own. But let's say you were able to have a sit down with that younger Sahil and being able to give your younger self one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why? Give me what you know now. Um, I think it, it's hard to put it in as one single piece of advice. Um, if I were to put it um, in one single piece, um, gosh, I uh, maybe I'll try it in putting it in a few different pieces of advice. I think uh, first and foremost, speed is your best friend. Uh, and, you know, it, this cannot be overstated. Um, a company is primarily defined by the number of tough decisions you make. Uh, so, you know, get really good at it and don't be emotional about it. Um, I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, I sincerely believe that the best people, team members, customers, partners need as much transparency as possible. Uh, so try to be as authentic as possible. Um, and then I think lastly, I'll say product market fit is the single most important thing. Uh, do not fool yourself into believing that you have it if you don't. I love it. So, uh, Sahil, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, you can email me at firstname at paraffin.com uh, or I also have a, a X account, uh, x.com slash lihas, which is my name spelled backwards. Amazing. Easy enough. Well, hey, Sahil, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Alejandro, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.